We are in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, which is a part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. Uh, We said last week when we looked at Proverbs that wisdom, biblical wisdom, is about navigating life well before God. So wisdom is different from knowledge. They're related. Knowledge is what you know. Wisdom is what you do with what you know. And my son reminded me of this example uh, that you've probably heard, that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is fruit, but wisdom is knowing not to put a fruit in, uh, not to put a tomato in fruit salad. And so wisdom is very practical like this, very practical. And the Bible doesn't shy away from the practical nature of wisdom. And today, as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, we're going to talk about living wisely, navigating life well in a fallen world. So I'm going to ask you, if you're able, please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And just a reminder, this is the very inspired Word of God. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your blessing on our time together in your word. I pray as a result, we would fear you and keep your commandments for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the major themes of this book is the vanity of life. I hope you heard that theme as I read the text. Verse 13 uh, says, It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And you see it right from the very beginning of the book. Chapter 1, verse 2. Notice how many times we see this word vanity. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That word vanity, you find it five times in that one verse. You find the word 38 times in the book. And so it's an important term. It's a key term. And it's a difficult term. It's difficult to interpret and understand. In English, vanity can mean pride. Another connotation in English, vanity can mean futile or worthless. And that's the idea here. The the NIV translates it meaningless. Life is meaningless. The Hebrew word behind this word carries this idea of mist or vapor. Life is like a a mist or a vapor or a breath. For example, look at Ecclesiastes 1.14. All is vanity and a striving after the wind. So let me just be real frank up front. This is not a fun, easy topic for us this morning. It can be challenging for us because we have this instinct as Christians to want to say life has great purpose and life has great meaning. And here it says life is meaningless. So so what do we do about this? Bruce Waltke said the book of Ecclesiastes is the black sheep of the canon of biblical books. It is the delight of skeptics and the despair of saints. So how do we think about a book that delights skeptics and causes saints to despair? 
First of all, I want to point out the New Testament also teaches that life is a vapor. James 4.14 says you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I also want to point out it's very important that we interpret the book rightly. We want to interpret all books of the Bible rightly. We want to interpret all books in general rightly. But some present special, special challenges, and the book of Ecclesiastes is one. Job is another one. Uh, let me explain why Job is challenging, to interpret. Because in the book of Job, much of Job is a conversation between Job and his friends. And then it's not until you get to the very end of the book when God speaks and basically says, the friends were wrong. So you can't just go take out a verse from something that the friends said and say, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible teaches. No, it's not. That's what the friend said to Job, and then God came in and said he was wrong. So you're not interpreting it rightly if you just go take this verse and say, this is what the Bible teaches. And in a very similar way, you're going to get in a lot of trouble if you just take a random verse out of Ecclesiastes and say, this is what the Bible teaches. Let, let me just give an illustration. Let me give an example from the book. Ecclesiastes 4.2, for example, the author says, I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. In other words, he says, better to be dead than alive. And then Ecclesiastes 9.4, on the other hand, says, He who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. So in one place in the book it says, better to be dead, and the other place it says, better to be alive. And you say, what are we supposed to do with this? How do we interpret this book? And one of the keys for interpreting the book is to, to look at the very end. Look at how he concludes. Tom Schreiner says it like this. The conclusion of the book functions as the hermeneutical lens by which the whole of the book should be read. So let's go to the end and read this very important conclusion. And then we're going to keep it in mind as we read and look at the rest of the book. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. He concludes like this, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So we're supposed to read the whole book through the lens of this ending. Very similar to Job. We read Job with the ending in mind. We have to read Ecclesiastes with the end in mind. So the book of Ecclesiastes, the author, the preacher, the teacher... He's telling us about this search that he went on. He says, I went on a search. I was looking for the meaning of life. I went on a search. And the end of that search, I concluded that life boils down to this. It's all that comes down to this. Fear God and keep his commandments. But along the way, the author, the preacher, the teacher went through a lot of different turns and twists and turns and, and, and started maybe concluding this and concluding that. And he's giving us insight into that journey. And sometimes along the journey, he came to the conclusion it's better to be dead than alive. Other times along the journey, better to be alive than dead. And we, we get to go and experience that journey with him. And we're not meant to take a verse out here and there and just say, this is what the Bible teaches. We're meant to say, this is the journey. Let's journey with him. Let's feel it with him. Knowing where he lands in the end. We're going to get to that. In the end, he's going to land with, it really boils down to this, fear God and keep his commandments. But along the way, there's a lot of vanity. 
There's a lot of meaninglessness, and he, he highlights that. He emphasizes that. And let's just go through the book and highlight some of the examples that he points out. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. He says, I went after pleasure with everything I had. Chapter 2, verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. If I wanted it, I tried it. 1 Kings 11.3 tells us Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So he's not joking with us when he tells us, if I want it, I went after it. But the point that he makes is, in the end, it wasn't satisfying. I came to realize this is not ultimately what life's about. Life's not ultimately about try to experience the greatest amount of pleasure you can. And that's a good reminder to us because there's a lot of people in this world right now who are going after pleasure with everything they have, thinking, if I can just get a taste of pleasure... Sexual pleasure. Uh, a lot of people are going after pleasure through some kind of medication, medicate themselves, substance. Like, I feel pain. I don't want to feel pain, so I take a substance to try to numb that pain. They're trying to experience some kind of a, a high, some kind of a pleasure. And, and, and we know, and the Bible tells us, this is not ultimately going to satisfy. Go after pleasure with everything you have, and in the end, you will not be satisfied. It's just biblical wisdom. Chapter 2, verse 16. He says, I, I noticed how the wise dies just like the fool, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. He says, I made an observation. The fool dies just like the wise. The wise dies just like the fool. And there's a part of me that says, why be disciplined and why pursue wisdom when in the end they both die? Right? And so, so one person said, the book of Proverbs emphasizes the normal patterns you see in life. It emphasizes the patterns like live righteously, be disciplined, work hard, and you'll live good and live long. The book of Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, emphasizes the anomalies in life. Sometimes you die young. Sometimes the good die young. And so the book of Ecclesiastes leans into, at the end of the day, the fool and the wise both die. So there's, there's, at times you say, why be disciplined? Why pursue wisdom? Why try to live righteously when life is vanity? Look at chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. He says, just like the fool and the wise both ultimately die, the wise and the animal both die. Like in the end, the wise person dies and returns to the dust just like an animal. Ashes to ashes. We all fall down. Right? And uh, th th by the way, this, reading this sounds a whole lot like reading Nietzsche and reading the existentialist continental philosophers that I studied as a philosophy major in college. It sounds very similar. And this is why he says skeptics delight in this book. Skeptics delight in the book of Ecclesiastes. Surely it can't get any more depressing than this, right? Uh, it actually does. Look at chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Hope nobody leaves after point one. Be sure and stay for point two. All right? <laughs> Chapter four, verses two and three. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. 
But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He says in one sense, it's better to be dead than alive. In fact, even more, it's better to not even be born and have to experience the futility of this life in this world. So I hope you're feeling encouraged and edified this morning by God's word. You can all go home now. Just kidding. How do we apply this? How in the world do you apply this point? Life is futile and meaningless. I want to point out, let's be encouraged by the fact that the Bible deals with this honestly. The Bible deals honestly, head on, straight on with the vanity of life, the futility of life. Because let's be honest, we've all experienced it. I was asking my family just this past week for examples. What are some examples? And my wife was really quick to give some examples. And she specifically mentioned cleaning as an example. She said, you clean the dust, and then immediately the dust returns. And she also specifically mentioned washing clothes. At our house, we have six people. And therefore, you're never, it's never a task that you're done with. There's always clothes to be washed, always clothes to be dried, always clothes to be folded, always clothes to be put away. And we never get to a point where we say, we're done with that. We can check that off the list. We don't have to worry about that for a while. No, there's more to be done. There's always work to be done. And the cycle, the endless cycle, can cause a person to say, cry out. The vanity of life. And I just want to point out, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat this, ignore this. The biblical writers complain about this. Some people leave the Christian faith because of this. Some people say, I've experienced the vanity of life, and therefore, I'm out. I'm out of the faith. I'm leaving. To which I want to reply, where are you going to go? What, what, because you still have to deal with the futility of life. Leave the Christian faith, you're still left dealing with the vanity of life. What worldview explains it better than Christianity? What religion can account for it more intellectually satisfying or more experientially satisfying than the Christian faith? I would argue there's none. For example... Let's say you say, I'm going to leave the Christian faith and I'm going to go to a more spiritualist, Eastern type of religion, which teaches, basically, just don't have attachments to things. Don't want things. Don't get close to people. Don't get close to stuff. And then if you lose the stuff or you lose the person, you're not sad. You're not depressed. You don't experience the vanity of life because you never were close in the first place. Just don't worry about having clean clothes in a clean house. And then, you know, if it's not clean, you won't worry about it. It won't be a big deal to you. I just want to say, this is not a satisfying way to live. I think deep down, I say, I want to enjoy life. I want to have stuff I enjoy. I want to have people I enjoy. I want to get close to people. Like, surely, I mean, what is life if we're just going to not have any attachments to anything? I just think that's not intellectually or experientially a satisfying approach to to life. Um, uh, The other extreme is, is kind of going the naturalistic, atheistic, secularist direction which comes to the conclusion, you know, we really are just stuff. We really are just kind of a clump of cells. And we really are just like animals at the end of the day. We live and we die. And there's no real meaning. There's no real purpose. And I think deep down, we know, I think deep down, all people know, we're more than a clump of cells. Right? There's more to life than just living and dying. There's something more to this. There's a, there's a meaning in life. I think everybody instinctively, intuitively sort of just kind of knows this. Little kids know this. I heard a little kid talking to his mom. I was in a ski lift line. Little bitty kid said, Mom, who made us? 
And my ears perked up. I want to hear this conversation. <laughs> and she kind of fumbled. Uh, what? What? what, what? <laughs> and he said, who made us? And she said, well, you, 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 you were just a little dot. We're all just little dots. We just came from little dots. And the kid just kind of looked like, what? And, and I really wanted to say, you didn't answer his question. Like, where did the dot come from? <laughs> who made the dot? I want to hear the answer. Right? And the kid wanted to hear the answer. And he didn't get a very intellectually satisfying response. Who made the dot? Who made me? Who made us? These are questions we all naturally ask. Why? Because we know intuitively there's something more. I'm here for a reason. I was made for a purpose. There's something here to life. And, and, and the Bible talks about this, this experience that we have, this, this vanity as a groaning. We're all groaning. The creation is groaning. And we're groaning because we know this is not right. We know there's something more. In fact, Romans 8.20 says, The creation was subjected to futility. That word futility in the Greek Old Testament is where we get the word. It comes from the same word of vanity as in Ecclesiastes. So the same word Paul uses, the creation was subjected to futility, is the same word. Life is vanity. Life is futile. And Paul says the creation was subjected to this. And we're a part of that creation. We were subjected to futility, vanity, meaninglessness, and therefore we groan. Therefore the creation groans, and we all groan. And part of the reason for the groaning is because we know instinctively, this isn't right. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And this brings us now to talk about a little bit of good news. Let's talk about the joy of life. The reason why we groan is because we know this is not right. This is not how it's always been. We just kind of know that. We have a memory of a garden way back in the past. And the Bible says, yes, you're right. That memory is correct. When God created the world, it was good. And it was beautiful. And there was symmetry. And there was no vanity. There was no vanity in Genesis 1 and 2. It was good. It was right. There was no meaninglessness. The creation was not subjected to futility or vanity or meaninglessness. In the beginning, God created it good. And, and, and the reason why we experience futility and meaninglessness and vanity is because the creation has been subjected to futility. In other words, the creation has experienced this catastrophic fall as a result of sin, which happens in Genesis 3. And therefore, you and I are living in a very unique world. It's very unique because on one hand, it's God's world. It is my Father's world. And there's a certain order and there's a certain beauty and there's a certain design and it's good and it's glorious. And that's true. And at the exact same time, it has been subjected to futility and therefore it is, it is seriously marred by sin. And every corner has been touched by sin. Uh, it's not as bad as it can possibly be. And so there's still some elements. You can still, you can still experience some of the goodness, some of the joy, some of the, some of the beauty. Some of that's still there. Theologians refer to this as common grace. It's the grace of God, it's the blessing of God that extends through the creation even outside of salvation. And it's there, and it's there to be enjoyed, and it's there to be delighted in because it's God's creation. And therefore, you find the word joy something like seven times throughout this book. And you find the word enjoy, like enjoy the creation, enjoy the world. 
multiple times. Let me just give you some examples. Chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. So there's joy to be found in eating. Amen? There's joy to be found in drinking. There's joy to be found in living. There's joy to be found in working. It's a gift from God. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. That phrase... Taking pleasure in your toil is a, is a phrase that runs throughout this book. There's something good about work. We're created to work and design and to produce it's, and to work the ground. Like it's, it's what we're designed for. It's what we're created for. It's what God put us here in the first place in this good creation. Work is what we did prior to the fall. Work didn't come about as a result of the fall. Work was something we were created to do before the fall. Work is a good, godly thing. Now, all of our work gets frustrated because it's a fallen world. So I'm not saying it's always fun and it's always productive. Sometimes it's not. And we know that. We experience that. A uh, simple example, uh, you know, shoveling the driveway when it snows. Uh, when it's time to shovel the driveway, you know, I, I usually end up doing that at, at our house for some reason. And, uh, and I, I don't know. I don't, I don't enjoy it, but I don't mind doing it. Uh, you know, at first it's like, oh, I got to go do this. Bundle up, go shovel. And at the end of it, though, when I'm finished doing it, there's like a moment where I just kind of stand back and admire it. Like, I did this. And I want to go tell the family, come look at this. Clean driveway. This is the work of my hands right here. This is my work. Now, that's something good about that. It's good to take pride in your work. I've done this. I've done something good. Now, here's where the futility comes in. You know, sometimes... My neighbor won't shovel his driveway. And then the sun comes out and melts his snow. And his driveway looks just like my driveway. And he didn't work at all. And I worked pretty good. And we both ended up at the same place. And I say, that's, just, that's the futility of life. That's the futility of work. That's a fallen world. Right? Or sometimes you'll shovel it. And then it keeps snowing. And you've got to go shovel it again. Or the wind blows. And you get these drifts. And you say, I should have just waited. Like, if I had just waited, I could have shoveled once and not twice. And so work is often frustrating. That's not because there's a problem with work. It's because there's a problem with the world. And the world has been subjected to futility, and we feel that. But there's still something good there. Solomon says, there's something good. He had everything he wanted, all the money and all the stuff. And yet he still concluded, it's good to work. It's good to put your hands and do something and create something and, and say, I've done this. I've built this. We're, we're created for that. We're not created to do nothing. Look at chapter 8, verse 15. By the way, it's a good reminder. We're going to be working in heaven. We're not going to sit around doing nothing, playing harps on clouds. We're going to be working. Because right? it's God-ordained. It's good. Chapter 8, verse 15. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. He says, I commend joy. Be joyful. It's good. Like you're here for a short time. A lot of life is vanity. But learn to be joyful. You ever noticed how some people when they come walking up to you, you just sort of brace yourself for the criticism or the complaints. 
Like, oh boy, here we go. What's going to be the thing this time? Right? Other people come walking up and you go, oh, I'm looking forward to having this conversation. This is going to be good. I have a feeling we're going to laugh. I have a feeling we're going to encourage each other. This is going to be good. Here's my main point. Be the latter person. <laughs> right? When people see you walking up to them, be the person that people say, oh, I'm looking forward to this. Don't be the person that people brace themselves for. What's it going to be this time? Be joyful. He says, I commend joy. There's joy to be found, so find it. There's joy to be experienced in life, so experience it. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. He says, I commend that you enjoy life with your wife. I think it's a little ironic coming from a man with 700 wives. I'm going to take it as God's word. Here's the point. This is God's word. This is God's world. He designed it with good things like marriage and a wife or a husband for those ladies. And enjoy it. Enjoy the good graces that are found in his good creation. Right? There's joy to be found. There's beauty to be experienced. There's, there's enjoyment to be had. And as Christians, we ought to be at the front of the line enjoying and experiencing the goodness and the beauty of the world. And the common grace is a good reminder. Is a common, it's called common because it's available to all. It's common grace, God's blessing outside of salvation that all people, even non-Christians, have and, and can experience. And it's good to find those commonalities with people, even people who may not be believers. We, we have certain, uh, you know, likenesses with people. Like we like the same teams with some people. It's fun to find those things. Or you have the same hobby with some people. It's fun to find those things. Some of your neighbors... You, it may not be Christians, but you have some similar values. Like you want your neighborhood to be clean and safe and you want to be good neighbors. And it's good to lean into those things and experience and enjoy those things. It's good to find common ground with everybody. There's common ground to be found with everybody. Right? Even people who are very different from us, worldview, religion, uh, political, there's still, it's, we can find some area, some area of agreement. I'm not suggesting we compromise. I'm not saying compromise on everything. I'm not saying ignore your convictions. I'm just saying it's good to find the places where you can find common ground with people, even people who are very different than you, and there's joy to be found in that. It's wise. There's wisdom to be found. We are meant to experience joy in life. And this brings us now to talk about the meaning of life. One of the common graces that I think God has placed in the hearts of all men and women and people is this kind of longing to figure things out, to figure out life. Why am I here? What is the meaning of this? And that's really what the book's about. And at the end, the author reaches the conclusion. He says, here's what I've determined is the the meaning of all of this. Let's look again. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. This is what it all boils down to. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is what life's ultimately about, fear God. We see that phrase something like seven times in the book. Fear God, keep his commandments. That's a theme that runs throughout the wisdom literature. Live life before God. Navigate life well and do it before your creator. And the unique emphasis 
or twist of Ecclesiastes is navigate life well before your creator, given that it's a fallen world. It's a fallen life, and therefore it can be hard to navigate sometimes. And, and it can be frustrating because you don't get all your answers, you don't get all your questions answered. You, you're going to try to figure things out. Why this and why not that? And why did God do it this way? And why didn't he do it that way? You're going to have those questions. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we learn wisdom is found in saying, you know what? I may not get all those questions answered. But at the end of the day, I know what life's about. It's about obeying him and fearing him and living before him. That's wisdom. Wisdom is when you come to a point in your life and you realize, I don't have to have all my questions answered. I don't understand all the ups and downs. I have tons of things I've still got questions about. But at the end of the day, this is why I'm here. He's my creator, and I'm here to live before him. And that's what the book's about. That's what a lot of the wisdom literature is about. And we get little glimpses that he's going to reach this conclusion at the end. He finally reaches the conclusion at the end. He... We get little glimpses throughout the book that this is where he's going to land. Let me just show you what I'm talking about. Go back to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 11. This is, comes right on the heels of after he's talked about everything. God's made everything a time for this, a time for that, time to, to live, a time to die. Beautiful passage of Scripture. And then he kind of concludes like this. Chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Look at verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. In other words, here's what he's saying. We all have this sense that there's something more. There's something more to life. There's something behind it. There's a reason. It's moving in a certain direction. We all have that sense. And we all have this longing and this desire to make sense of it. And he says at some level, we can't. It's not our place to fully understand it all. But the wise person is the person who says, this ultimately drives me to God, not drives me away from God. This ultimately drives me to my creator, and I just trust him and fear him. And that's what wisdom boils down to. He's the king, and I'm not. I had somebody say to me last week after the sermon, I think I can summarize your sermon like this. He's the king and I'm not. And I said, sounds pretty good. I'm not sure I can improve on that. He's the king, I'm not. Maybe if I add one thing, I'd say this. He's the king, I'm not, and neither are you. (laughs) He's the king. And wisdom is found in living for the king. It's that simple. Look at chapter 8, verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. Even though the evil might prosper. Sometimes the evil prosper. Sometimes the good die young. And we might be inclined to say, that's meaningless, that's pointless, I'm done, I'm out. He says the wise person will say, it goes well with those who fear God. It's, it's wise to fear God. Even when I see the wicked prospering and the evil not prospering, the wise person still fears God and obeys His commandments. Look at how the book ends. Chapter 12, verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
He basically says, I'm confident one day God's going to sort it all out. One day the judge, the creator judge is going to return and he's going to make it all right and sort it all out. And the rest of the Bible bears out this teaching that there is in fact coming a day when God's going to return to judge the living and the dead. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And there's a sense in which we all know it. It's, it's, it's built into the heart of men and women and all people. We know it. We actually kind of long for it. We want there to be this day when we experience justice. We want this day when, when everything's made right. And Romans 8 talks about everything subjected, creation subjected to futility. And one of the reasons is because we want to be liberated. We want to be set free from our chains, the chains of futility, the chains of a fallen world. And one day... The Bible says the king's going to return and he's going to return in judgment. And he's going to, it's a good day because he's going to make it all right. And there's something in the human heart that longs for that. We long for justice. That's why virtually everybody rejoiced when they heard the result of the Murdoch trial. Because they said, we want justice. We believe he's guilty and it's right that he would be found guilty. We just have this instinct, this impulse. We want justice. Christians, non-Christians, we want it. Sirhan Sirhan comes up for parole, even in the state of California, denied. Why? He took the life of someone, right? And so there's a sense in which he doesn't, he doesn't deserve to live life free. We know that. We instinctively are, are driven by that concept of what's right, what's just. We, we want it. We're longing for it. The Bible says, good news. One day we're going to get it. We'll never get it perfectly in this life. Never experience justice perfectly here. It's a fallen world. One day we will experience justice perfectly when the king, the judge, returns and sets it all right and makes it all right, and it's going to be a glorious day. But this is a good reminder to us. It's not going to be a glorious day for all. In fact, the Bible teaches it's not going to be a glorious day for most, which is sobering because God's going to judge everyone for everything they've done. Chapter 12, verse 14 says, even the secret things. He's going to judge us for the secret things, the things that people don't even know about. He's going to judge you for your thoughts. Even the thoughts that other people don't even know about, he's going to judge you for those. And his his judgment is right. His judgment is just. And it's righteous. He knows all. So on one hand, here's the good news. All those people who have wronged you and all that injustice you've experienced in life, one day is going to be made right. And the people who have wronged you are going to be proven wrong. But here's the bad news. Think about all those people you've wronged. Think about all the injustices you're guilty of. Think about all the times you've broken God's laws and God's commands. And as I mentioned, not just the stuff you've done, but even the stuff you've thought. The secret things. I'm going to stand before the judge who knows all things and I'm going to be judged based on everything I've done and not done and everything I've thought and not thought. That's a scary thought. That scares us to death. It should scare you to death. It should scare you to death that one day you will stand before your creator and be judged. The The only reason why it shouldn't scare you to death is if there is someone who can stand for you under that judgment. And if that person has a perfect, righteous standing before God, and the incredible good news of the Christian faith in the Bible is this, God has provided just that for us in Jesus Christ. 
He has obeyed where we have rebelled. He has succeeded where we failed. And God has put him forward for us. And he will stand for you on your behalf, in your place, as your substitute before the throne of God above. And that's the only way you can hear the creator of the universe say of you, not guilty. Because you are guilty, and I am guilty. Right? This is why Jesus said, something greater than Solomon is here. Because he was there. And who is he? What does he come to do? Let's think about what he came to do. He came to walk in our place as us, as our substitute. He experienced the futility of this life. That's why it says Jesus wept. He was weeping in response to the death of his friend. He was experiencing the futility, the vanity of life. And in in response, he cried. And it was a cry of anger. He was angry at the fallen world. Jesus uh, sympathizes with you in your anger and your groaning. He has groaned too. He's groaned for you. And he experienced the joy of this life. He went to a wedding. He performed his first miracle at a wedding. He turned water to wine so that there could be celebration at the wedding. He enjoyed life. And he ultimately knew what the meaning of life was. He ultimately knew it's about obeying the Father. And he obeyed the Father all the way to the end. And at the very end, he said, Not my will, but your will be done. And Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He did this so that you and I can stand up in the judgment. You will stand before your Creator one day. You will be judged. And the bad news is, none of us can stand on our own merits, on our own righteousness. Perfect judgment, full full sinners. That's the bad news. Here's the incredible good news. The judge, the king, has put forward his son who obeyed perfectly for you, and his righteousness can become yours. His right standing before God can become your right standing before God, not because of anything you've done, but solely by faith. If you'll just simply recognize your need, your sin, and look to Jesus and believe on him and trust that he's done for you what I'm sitting here telling you he did for you. He lived a perfect life in your place in order to die a death in your place so that if you'll just look on him and trust on him, you can have the perfect one standing before you and you can stand under God's perfect judgment. What are you possibly waiting for? Go to Jesus, believe on him, have one who will stand before you at the judgment and therefore you can stand and have one who will stand before the throne of God above for you even right now. Let's go to him in prayer.